people who were old and young, people from all different religions, people from different political affiliations, people with different education levels, income levels, and people who lived all over the U.S. were equally likely to have engaged in non-monogamy or not. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and I'm here to bring you content, conversations, insights, perspectives, and lessons learned that will bring you closer to a deeper appreciation for and relationship with yourself. I'm here to bring you conversations about sexuality, self-awareness, self-development, relationships, intimacy, exploration that will guide you on your journey to deeper self-understanding. Our close relationships account for 70% of our happiness and 90% of our well-being. So better relationships really does mean a better life. I'm so happy to have you here with me. And as always, I'm right here next to you along for the ride on this wild, crazy, beautiful journey. Dr. Amy Moores is a professor of psychology at Chapman University. She also serves as a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University and the co-chair of the American Psychological Association's Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy. Her research focuses on gender, sexuality, inclusion, and well-being. And her goal is to use science to address social issues such as systemic discrimination. Hello. So excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I would like to have you start out by introducing yourself to our listeners and telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you came to be doing work. Sure. My name is Amy Morris, and I'm an assistant professor at a smaller birds college called Chapman University. I'm also a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University, and I co-chair the first national committee that's a professional committee within the field of psychology on the topic of consensual non-monogamy. And I have been studying all things related to people who engage in consensual non-monogamy for almost the last 14 years. And I kind of, for lack of better words, stumbled across this area of inquiry a little bit by accident. Really, really early in my career, I was trying to find the question to something else. And I ended up finding that a lot of queer people were engaging in consensual non-monogamy and very few academics and clinicians were studying the topic, taking it seriously. And frankly, the field of psychology at the time were rendering these people invisible. And at the time, it kind of seemed like no one was engaging in consensual non-monogamy, but it turns out that a whole bunch of people are. When you mentioned you were looking for something else and this popped up, I'd love to know what other topics or things you see it as being related to, because 
this might be something that people listening are like, ah, I, I don't know, this doesn't really relate to me or this is an, uh, of interest. But how would you explain why this area of study is important and how it might be more related to everyday topics than more so than people might realize? Yeah, I think it's related to a lot, both personally and people's personal lives. We grow up in a society that is set up to favor and to legitimize monogamy. And so we grow up with this ideal that we need to reach certain milestones and enter the institution of marriage and have kids. And it turns out that's great for some people, but not everyone wants to do that. And so studying the topic of non-monogamy, understanding more about it, getting that type of relationship out into the zeitgeist gives people options. So people might be personally interested in it. In terms of moving forward in society, that's another way in which people might be interested in consensual non-monogamy. Right now, there are three places in the state of Massachusetts where people can get multi-partner domestic partnerships. There's also anti-discrimination law that is being passed to protect people on the basis of their relationship status. And even though some people may not want to personally engage in non-monogamy, they might know people. They probably know people who engage in non-monogamy and they want to support them or be allies and understand that people might not want to experience the world the same as them. Right. I hear a lot of how this could almost be a metaphor for a lot of other things on a lot of questions people might have about life in general, this idea of living by design and not by default, engaging in relationships by design rather than by default and questioning the default or the status quo, even if that means being more content and clear and happy with the way you're doing things, but recognizing that it's a conscientious choice you've made rather than just the default outcome, as well as for people who just want to bring more intentionality and live more intentionally in relationships in general, having more awareness. And again, even if that means better understanding where you are, doesn't mean talking about it or learning about it necessarily has to influence you or change what you're doing, right? Right. Understanding the full spectrum also helps us get more perspective for where we're at, what we desire and why we like the things we like and like to engage in things the way that we do. Right. Exactly. As well, as you mentioned there too, building empathy and knowing how to support people. So to make sure that we understand what we're talking about today, I just had this experience right before you and I hopped on this call where I was talking to somebody who said, oh, I have to go. I'm recording an interview. And they said, oh, what are you going to talk about? And I said, consensual non-monogamy. And they said, polyamory? And I said, kind of, not really. And they said, open relationships. And I said, well, that's related. That could be one way to talk about it. And so... I'd love to have you go through some of these operational definitions and terms and terminology so people really understand 
what consensual non-monogamy is and what other terms or definitions that people may have already heard are related to it. Right, of course. So consensual non-monogamy is a synonym for ethical non-monogamy, that people use them interchangeably. In the world of like academic research, we tend to use the word consensual non-monogamy because the axis of agreements we're focusing on are consenting ones. And this type of relationship can vary on different levels of emotional, romantic, or sexual openness with multiple people. And everyone involved is mutually agreeing upon these different various levels with multiple concurrent partners. And the friend that you were talking to is correct. Like there are different types of consensually or ethically non-monogamous relationships. So polyamory is a type of non-monogamy where people tend to focus on emotional, romantic, and or sexual bonds with multiple people, where open and swinging relationships tend to prioritize sexual relationships with other people, either done alone or as a couple unit, but tend to typically not have agreements that emotional or romantic closeness is going to be a part of multiple relationships. So there are lots of different ways that people practice consensual non-monogamy and Right now in our English language, we're continuously creating new terms to describe these different types of relationships or how people interact. Another form of consensual non-monogamy would be relationship anarchy. And people who identify as relationship anarchists are really kind of seeing how a relationship with someone unfolds and it could take lots of different ways People who engage in relationship anarchy don't necessarily tend to have a primary or hierarchy structure where some other types of consensual monogamy, you might see this, meaning that someone might call a partner a nesting partner or a primary partner, and that could signify that they live with someone, share different sorts of resources, or maybe they've entered the institution of marriage with someone. Some people don't practice a hierarchy, and so they have relationships in which they consider their partners equal to one another, and they may or may not live with those partners. And then the types of ways that people practice, there's so many different words. Like some people might be in a three-person relationship, and they might call that a triad or a thruple. Some people might be in four-person relationships. Some people might practice something called solo polyamory, where they may not necessarily live with someone and they have all of these different independent relationships. And so I look forward to, as the years go by, to see how all of these different terms and new different ways to practice non-monogamy or how people have defined their agreements are going to start to appear as first in kind of community settings, and then we'll make it to a broader audience. Right. So you've mentioned agreements a few times and the axis of agreements. Tell me about the importance of agreements in consensual non-monogamy. Yeah, I think it's the core. So I like to use the word agreement because ostensibly people are mutually agreeing upon a given way to relate to one another or how to relate to other people. And so they're kind of the core of consensual non-monogamy. They're also the core of 
how we just relate to people in general. Like we have different agreements with our friends. Sometimes they're spoken, sometimes they're unspoken. In our society, we have a lot of unspoken agreements or scripts around monogamy as kind of, oh, after you start dating someone for X amount of weeks, then you may or may not have a talk or you might do certain intimate things with someone to signal that you're exclusive, where in the world of consensual non-monogamy, a lot of it, because it's not the default and people are really carving out space and thinking about how they want to navigate their intimate life, it's often a lot of conversations around these types of agreements, around what people feel comfortable with in terms of how they want to communicate. Do they want to talk on the phone or text or how often? How often do they want to see each other? If they're in an argument, how is best to give the other person affirmation? So lots of different agreements that are unique to the people that are relating to one another. It's a big part of non-monogamy. You in there used the term unspoken agreements or scripts. And I, what came up for me is, you know, how many assumptions there are in culture and so- society and our views on relationships and really this fascinating kind of contradiction or comparison between the assumptions that relationships many times operate on and relationships that really go above and beyond to consciously and intentionally design and clarify and create agreements on which they're built. And just this whole idea between assumptions and agreements. Right. It's not to say that assumptions don't happen with consensual non-monogamy, but it's not like you can see a rom-com and it's full of assumptions about non-monogamy. No, they're full of assumptions usually about monogamy. In terms of helping people again, before we dive deep into kind of the research and stigma and what we can learn from consensual non-monogamy, whether or not people want to or are interested in practicing it, what we can learn in monogamous relationships, even from consensual non-monogamy and all about communication and diversification of needs. When people come to you and they say, I imagine people often wonder, oh, is this for me or what would that even be? Or kind of wondering whether or not they should think about this or reflect on this. How would you answer the question of who would consensual non-monogamy be for and who would it not be for? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think I'd leave that up to maybe the a therapist (laughs) to decide (laughs) personally for people or the person seeing it. In terms of my evidence-based answer, meaning like what does the research say? Is there a certain profile of who engages in non-monogamy? It turns out that everyone's interested. A few years ago, my colleagues and I at the Kinsey Institute, we conducted two different nationally representative studies, meaning that we had people take part in a survey that And those people's identities reflected the U.S. demography. And we asked people if they have ever engaged in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. And we gave them a clear definition so that they knew what we were talking about. And we found that there were just very few differences in who has engaged in non-monogamy in the past and who hasn't. 
meaning that people who were old and young, people from all different religions, people from different political affiliations, people with different education levels, income levels, and people who lived all over the U.S. were equally likely to have engaged in non-monogamy or not. And the one difference that we did find is that lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are about three times more likely than heterosexual people to have engaged in non-monogamy. So potentially, if someone is a sexual minority or is questioning their sexual identity, non-monogamy could be an avenue, especially if they're coming from a couple unit to maybe explore their sexuality. But in terms of other sorts of predictors, it seems like people from all walks of life are interested in this relationship. There might be some more personality or tendency things that might draw someone toward or away from non-monogamy. Like I imagine someone who would identify as very jealous could have a difficult time with consensual non-monogamy. But I also trust in the idea that jealousy can be unlearned and managed and people can cope with it and that non-monogamy could be a good fit if they wanted it. I wouldn't say that's necessarily a barrier for life into trying out non-monogamy. Yeah, and I think that's a great kind of clarification and normalization there in terms of the research referring to just non-monogamy in general and when people think back like in their dating lives or that sort of thing. Many people have most likely engaged in some form of non-monogamy, whether or not it was consensual or was based on agreements versus assumptions might vary. But really this being something that, you know, many people have engaged with or explored whether or not they use those labels for it. And then today focusing on consensual non-monogamy, which is kind of there is a certain difference between like, oh, I'm dating multiple people and this is more of a formalized something that, to which we have all agreed and created and designed intentionally versus like kind of is just happening and there are assumptions people may or may not know. Right. They might not talk about the other people. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, there's something so different about that. And it's so interesting how one is much more ethical and the purpose behind it is completely different. And yet it's almost the one that's more stigmatized (laughs) than Mm -hmm. just like we're living in the moment and dating around and all that sort of thing. There's something I think that comes up for people of, oh, is that something that people could be okay with? Or, oh, I didn't know that was a thing people agreed on or in fact engage in willingly, intentionally, happily, there feels like there's something actually really interesting in the different interpretations between those. I think that people who are casually dating multiple people, they're not necessarily receiving stigma because the end goal is that they're going to enter a monogamous relationship and they're going to get married and they're going to reach those societal milestones. So I think that that's part of that play. And I think our society, to some extent, is comfortable with this lack of disclosure and opaqueness around dating. Not talking about how people are actually dating multiple people. And I'm not saying anything positive about sexual affairs or cheating, but there is kind of a norm in our society to kind of excuse that type of behavior or even to see it as like common and 
again, related to this idea that it seems like we're kind of okay with these breaches as long as the end goal is monogamy. I think that's so interesting, right? Where if the end goal is still what society has kind of laid out as the appropriate goal or outcome, and in some way it's working towards that, then it's approved. And if not, there are questions where it's this red flag of, oh, but how could you not want this? Or what would this mean for everybody else who has followed that, right? Raising a lot of uncomfortable questions, not about people who have chosen it, but perhaps on behalf of the people who haven't. In terms of the research that you mentioned that polled people and said, oh, this is actually the number of people who have practiced some kind of non-monogamy in general in the past. What are some of the, I guess at the stage for where the research was at before this, (laughs) what did we know? What didn't we know? And what have been some of the most interesting key insights that have come out of this research? So I feel like I've been studying consensual non-monogamy for a long time because I'm kind of a young person and I've been doing this for about 14 years. But I'm actually standing on the shoulder of quite a few people who have done some groundbreaking work. And a lot of those people actually stopped studying non-monogamy for a variety of reasons, like their university didn't care for them to study that topic. They might have moved on to something else because it's quite frankly hard to get funding to do this work. And so as scientists, we often need to pursue research that is going to be fundable for us to keep our positions in higher ed. And so some of the earlier work, there was some really interesting research by a researcher named Richard Jenks on swinging. So who engages in swinging? What did that look like in the 70s and 80s? So we had a little bit of an idea about how people have stereotypes about swingers, but often they really don't hold up. Like Things like people have stereotypes that those who engage in swinging are probably spreading STIs or somehow a vector of doing this. But it turns out that a lot of people who engage in swinging are consistently and correctly using barrier methods and very serious about testing. There was a researcher, Eli Sheff, who is a sociologist by training, and she has been studying people who practice polyamory and are raising kids since 1997, and she's still doing this work, so following these very same people over time. And her work informed science that people who engage in polyamory and are parents and are particularly our co-parenting, report numerous benefits of this arrangement. So they can pool their financial resources, they can pool their time resources, and parents say that's really helpful with managing and like raising multiple kids, and especially those who had special needs kids. And from the perspective of those kids, they actually really loved this adult attention from multiple people. So they liked that they had these different parental figures or close friends of their parents in their lives because they just really liked that attention. And they were exposed to different hobbies or different types of food or just general care that they received. There are other notable researchers, but really in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, when I got started in this research, 
there just wasn't a lot about how consensual non-monogamy is related to psychological theory. So psychology is a science and we typically use theories to then make hypotheses and understand how we relate to one another. And there's lots of theories of intimacy and sexuality, like attachment theory. And we just had no idea how non-monogamy fit into these theories of love and intimacy because these theories of love and intimacy were really founded on the assumption that monogamy is a human universal, that people pair bond, that people aren't engaging in consensual non-monogamy. So there was a lot of work to be done there. When I first got started in this work, we had no idea how many people engaged in non-monogamy. Like, no idea. Even though, like, researchers and the good people at the census or Gallup or other types of polling places pull everything, we had no idea how many people wanted to do this, how many people said it was their ideal relationship or had. Over the years, my colleagues and I have thankfully been able to document and start to figure out those numbers and... We also didn't have a good idea of what does the stigma feel like for people who engage in non-monogamy? What does it feel like to be worried about being rejected from your family or friends or not want to talk about things at work? How does that affect people's mental health? Is it linked to depression? Is it linked to anxiety? And so over the years, my colleagues and I have really been able to explore those types of questions. Right. I think in your research, you identified some of those stigmas that are mm -hmm. most common. Is that correct? Or some of the misinterpretations or misunderstandings? Oh, and there's so many. I recently, I'm sure there are dozens if I was hard pressed to write them all down. I think about these misconceptions a lot. And so it's a stereotype that someone has. And then if we were to really probe it and start to look at people's attitudes and behaviors and study it in a scientific way, does that stereotype even hold up? So I recently wrote something called a review paper, so a summary of different research where I really looked at five different misconceptions that people have. So things like there is a certain profile of who engages in non-monogamy, and we talked about that earlier. It turns out there's not. That's totally a misconception. People from all walks of life are interested in consensual non-monogamy and have engaged in it. People typically tend to think, oh, it must be something that highly educated or liberal or atheists do, but it turns out that people from all over the U.S. are engaging in non-monogamy. Another misconception that I looked at in the paper is this idea that people think that people who are engaging in consensual non-monogamy are doing so to fix their formerly monogamous relationship, that something must be wrong with their relationship, and so they're doing it to fix it. And there was a really interesting study done in 2021 by Wooden colleagues, and they asked people, what was your motivation for engaging in consensual non-monogamy? And they asked like over 500 people and not a single person said it was to fix their relationship. Instead, people gave all different sorts of answers about like enriching their life in different ways, exploring their sexuality, building community, or even pragmatic things like my partner and I were long distance. So this made sense to engage in consensual non-monogamy. What comes up for that one is this is, again, this is a hypothesis, but that that might be a really big difference between non-consensual non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy, right? That 
purpose or reason. Oh, potentially for those who are like committing affairs. Yeah. Those answers sound different than what somebody would say as to why they may be engaged in an affair. Right, right. Where someone who's engaging in an affair, it could be because they felt like maybe they were bored or maybe every actually everything was fine and they just did it. And who knows? There are researchers studying affairs. I agree with you. I doubt there would be a high overlap between motivations to engage in consensual non-monogamy and then non-consensual non-monogamy. I think one other thing that was really interesting is this idea that people believe that those who engage in consensual non-monogamy, that something must be wrong with their relationships. Like maybe their relationships have less commitment or maybe they feel a lot of jealousy or they're just like, they're not functioning in a way as people would if they were engaging in monogamy. And so my colleagues and I, a few years ago, we conducted one of the largest comparative studies to date where we asked over 2,000 people engaged in consensually non-monogamous and monogamous relationships to fill out a variety of measures of relationship quality. So like how much love they felt for their partner, how much trust they felt, commitment, and things like that. And then we were able to compare these experiences of people who engage in monogamy and non-monogamy. And we found out that people reported really high levels of relationship satisfaction, of trust, and of commitment, and also how much love they felt for their partner. And so it didn't matter if they were engaging in monogamy or non-monogamy. It seemed like everyone was reporting that they were enjoying their relationship. So that starts to tell us that arguably, as long as people are living up to their relationship agreements... So a relationship agreement of monogamy is to be sexually and romantically exclusive. And then whatever those agreements are for consensual non-monogamy that people have decided on, that they're likely going to have satisfying relationships. We did find one really big difference in that study. We found that people who engage in consensual non-monogamy reported remarkably low levels of jealousy, where people engaged in monogamous relationships reported really high levels. So they were saying things like, I'm jealous. I worry that my partner is going to leave me. I go through my partner's email or purse to see if they're cheating on me. I interrogate them of where they're going, where those sorts of attitudes and behaviors were just seen at a very low frequency among people who practice consensual non-monogamy. And I think that finding is counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah, both of those kind of the first part being that people reported equal amounts of relationship satisfaction or kind of love for their partner, satisfaction with the relationship. And I wonder how much of that is kind of cause is almost, okay, this is a prerequisite needed on which you can build consensual non-monogamy is right, that satisfaction, that, that trust, that love. And for some people who engage in it, if it might also be a positive consequence where in designing the relationship that works best for them or the relationships that work best for them, it also leads them to feel even more satisfied as an outcome or almost like a a cycle where one might feed into the other. I love that part, what you said about relationship satisfaction 
isn't correlated with the way that people are structuring their relationship. It's correlated with whether or not it is living up to the agreements in the relationship, whatever those agreements look like for different people. And I think that's such a great question for people of what are the agreements, let alone what might be some of the assumptions, but what are the agreements on which your relationship is currently built? You want to build your relationship regardless of if you are in a consensual non-monogamous relationship, in a monogamous relationship, any kind. This question of what are the agreements that you want your relationship to be built on and that you both want to live up to and work towards that will, and in living those out, it will give you the highest level of relationship satisfaction. Right. And I think about that a lot, too. And I, I'm a college professor, so I spend some of my time researching and then some of my time teaching Gen Z. And I usually tell my students, like, no matter what relationship you're going to enter, because I don't care what relationship they enter, if they stay single, I just want them to do what feels good for them, is to really talk about what that looks like. So even if you're going to engage in monogamy, have a conversation about what cheating looks like to you because research shows that very few people totally agree on what cheating is. Some people think like dancing with someone else is cheating where other people are like, absolutely not, that's cheating. And I think people can save a world of heartache and pain if they had a lot of these conversations early on or at least if they just had these conversations at all until before something negative happens. Right. Turning the assumptions on which the relationship is built into agreements on which it is built. So when we think about these seemingly very different ways of engaging in relationships, there are on the surface in particular many ways that they are different, logistically, agreement-wise, and there are a lot of similarities as well in terms of what are the key ingredients. Having agreements is important. What determines relationship satisfaction is the level to which the people engaged, all of those things being really important. So while they are very different, there are some similarities. And I'd love to explore what different people and different relationship styles can perhaps learn from one another when it comes to some of the things that are either helpful and useful in a monogamous relationship, how that can then be leveraged as well or also relates to consensual non-monogamy, and also how some of the tools and communication techniques and sort of realities or agreements such as the need for diversification of needs, how those also might be able to help people in monogamous relationships kind of expand their toolkit and their ways of engaging in completely monogamous relationships, but that can be learned from consensually non-monogamous relationships. Yeah. And I think about this a good amount. Like the more we start to uncover how people practice non-monogamy, the ways that they navigate their sexual health, the ways that they talk about their sexual desires, the ways that they make 
the people that they're dating feel special because you are often probably dating multiple people or having sex with multiple people. And at the end of the day, we all want to feel special with who we're dating. And what can we learn from those styles of communication, those types of conversations? And I think a lot about how some of those keys might unlock a whole new way of thinking about couples counseling or family counseling. It's not to say that there isn't a bi-directional relationship. I think that a lot can be learned from people who practice monogamy, for people who practice other types of relationships. But I feel like because that is normative and it's so salient in society, I really like to flip the lens and think more about what can we learn from people who practice consensual non-monogamy. Almost what are the things in a consensually non-monogamous relationship toolkit Right, that right. we can apply to monogamous relationships. And one, and oh gosh, there's so many. About a decade ago, I wrote a whole paper on this with my former grad advisor. But one of the things that I have continued to find interesting and still do research on to this day is how people who engage in consensual non-monogamy navigate their sexual health with multiple people. In our U.S. society, we tend to have a more or less a lack of comprehensive sex education approach. Many people are still getting an abstinence-only or a risk-focused sex education at a young age, meaning this is how we prevent disease, kind of scare tactics. Mm -hmm. It's not pleasure-focused. And I think people who practice consensual non-monogamy, we could learn a lot about well, how are they communicating risk to multiple people? Some of my research and some of the research of Justin LaMiller has found that people who practice consensual non-monogamy on average have about two times more sexual partners than people who practice monogamy. But despite having more sexual partners, they have similar rates of acquiring STIs as people who practice monogamy. And people who practice consensual non-monogamy are more likely to consistently use barrier methods for oral, anal, and vaginal sex compared to people who practice monogamy, and particularly people who practice monogamy but are cheating on their partner. And so why kind of is this happening, these equal rates of STIs, when arguably the risk is slightly higher because there are more sexual partners introduced? And so some of the things that qualitative research can be really good at is understanding, well, how are you navigating your sexual health? How are you communicating these things to people? And when we ask people engaged in consensual non-monogamy, those types of questions, really interesting answers emerge. Like, I go on dates to get sexual health testing with a new partner, like turn it into a date activity. Or... I carry around a copy of my STI results on my phone and I share it with a partner before having sex with them and I ask the same of them. Or, you know, they'll say things like, I'll wait to have sex with someone until they get an STI screening. And so all of those different behaviors, at least I haven't learned or none of my students have learned in their sex education those different types of tactics or conversations or ways to navigate sexual health that are very transparent. And so I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of different ways to think about how to talk about sexual health. What else comes up in terms of 
what is in a toolkit in terms of communication or ways of thinking about being in relationship with another person that mm. can relate to monogamous relationships? I think another interesting thing, and this is done often by people who are trained in marriage and family counseling. So people who practice monogamy, if they have a, maybe a conflict or some sort of underlying issues and they're going to see someone who specializes in relationships or couples, some general advice given is to maybe carve out a specific amount of time, maybe on a weekly or biweekly basis, to talk about some issues instead of letting them kind of fester or instead of blowing up right at the moment to kind of schedule relationship-type talks. And I really appreciate that advice, but from my understanding, people are kind of only doing that if they're hearing it from a therapist, if they've already had conflict, where when you look at the research of people who practice consensual non-monogamy, it seems like just a higher percent of people are doing this organically. And so they're setting time out for their partners to not necessarily all get in like a team huddle, but with different partners to carve out space to do some relationship check-ins. Like, hey, do you feel like we spent enough time together this month? Or how are you feeling that I'm dating this new person? And like just putting that out on the table instead of waiting until something might go wrong or maybe someone is just more shy or introverted so it's hard for them to express their needs. Like, cultivating that time, I think could just be really useful for people in any type of relationship, especially before things get critical where a therapist is recommending you to do this. I love the idea of intentionally carving out that time. And that's something that I have had a couple on the podcast who talks a lot about how they're a monogamous couple, but they really consciously create these containers in which to engage in, in conversation about their relationships. And I think the important thing to note there is these are proactive and reactive, right? Proactively setting aside the time, even if it doesn't feel like there's a need for it, mm -hmm. right? Because you can always get into deeper or more interesting things or more exciting things about what kind of life you want to build together, what kind of experiences you want to have. And they can also help deal reactively with things that probably aren't most productively going to be dealt with in the moment when they're actually happening. So giving people time to pull off, get perspective, get their thoughts together, see if it's something that even still bothers them or not, because maybe, well, it feels they like need a big time. deal in the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two days later or two weeks later, it no longer is a big deal, right? So mm -hmm. simultaneously having that kind of proactively as a relationship don't even want to call it like a health checkup, a relationship design session. And it can also be used reactively, but again, not seeing it as, well, it must be broken if we have to do that. Seeing as, well, this is going to be unbreakable mm -hmm. if we do this. Right. Or this is going to be fun or bring us closer together yeah. or, yeah, yeah, another act of intimacy. Intimacy doesn't have to always take the form of like sex. Yeah. And I loved even just the question of, do you feel like we spent enough time together over the past month, right? Or what were some of your favorite moments or what was difficult? Even right. just if it's focusing on some of the positive things, 
that will help you get more awareness around what are the things that positively nourish your relationship so that it's not just about avoiding the negative things or sorting through those, but also, okay, how do we add more of these positive things to our relationship to kind of build them up? In terms of other communication techniques or strategies, that sounds really formal, but in terms of communication in general, is there anything else that comes to mind? And then, of course, there's the topic of diversification of needs that is a point of view on which consensual non-monogamy is built. Yeah, and I think some people might take the stance of like really seeking out different partners or different activities because they know or they they have a clear idea of a need that they're looking for. Like we could think of maybe a sexual need, like a very specific kink partner and you're going out and you're trying to find that person. And then I think other people just realize that as humans, we just enrich each other's lives in different ways. Just like people who have multiple different best friends, they probably bring out different sides of us. Maybe some of them fulfill needs or just bring out like a really funny side or maybe we're more emotionally close with people. And I think those things sometimes just kind of happen for people who engage in consensual non-monogamy. And it might be like a byproduct or an accident, whereas some people really might intentionally go to seek out partners because they're realizing they really want someone to share a specific thing with. Right. And in monogamous relationships, the same thing being true where, you know, one person, and this is kind of an idea that I think has become a lot more common and accepted and recognized where one person cannot be everything for the other person. Right. And neither can we as one person be the everything for somebody else, right? The partner, therapist, coach, sounding board, Sage right. advice, right? Patient, right? Unrelentless uh, hot lover. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Perfect <laughs> parents. <laughs> yeah. Hot and steamy, but always there to change every diaper. Yes. Right. Right. And then also super secure and safe. <laughs> really busy, yet always available, yet making a lot of money, yeah. yet has enough free time. And it's yes. just, it can be really overwhelming, if and not like stable and predictable, yeah. yet yeah. spontaneous and novel. Right. Esther Perel opens her TED Talk with this idea. And so that doesn't mean, right, that fact doesn't mean everybody needs to be in consensually non-monogamous relationships. But what that means is that we might benefit more from our romantic partnership and a monogamous partnership if we don't expect everything of them. And if we use all of these other resources that we have, our friends, our family, our network, our communities. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have the whole village that we used to have to support all of these things. But metaphorically speaking, especially if we actually allow others to help us in the way that many of them probably want to, mm -hmm. we do in some ways have a village or at least a group of people who can help fulfill different needs and 
be even better and more specialized for different needs that we have. We've talked a lot about consensual non-monogamy and monogamy, whether or not people are interested in consensual non-monogamy just as a way to kind of better understand it, get more clarity as to what it isn't, what we can learn from it. Do you have any suggestions for people who are interested in talking about this either with friends or as a way to raise awareness or build empathy towards it, or perhaps even people who are interested in talking about this within their own relationships, advice for ways to bring up that topic that might be productive in other ways that maybe wouldn't be the most productive. Yeah. So I guess I'll answer the second one first for people who are interested about maybe if they're casually dating a bunch of people or in a monogamous relationship and they're thinking about transitioning the non-monogamy. The advice I typically give people is to read a bunch about consensual non-monogamy before hopping on a dating app or before trying to even date, read about the different types. There's, there are a handful of popular press books on the topic of consensual non-monogamy. There's also a lot of very Googleable information. There's news articles at this point. There's community forums. And I give that advice because then people can start to understand, oh, am I kind of drawn to swinging? Because that involves your partner in a way that is radically different than if someone is interested in polyamory, meaning that sometimes you can do these things more independently or there's different layers of romance or sex. And so I always get people to, I give them the advice to read more and read personal stories about people who engage in non-monogamy. What does it look like? What are some of the common feelings that people might go through? What are some of the challenges that they might expect? And what are some of those benefits that they might expect? And then I typically recommend people, especially if they're coming from a monogamous relationship, is to seek the care of someone who is affirming of consensual non-monogamy within the field of mental health. Typically, a therapist can be really good at walking people through, giving different kind of pacing or exercises, things like that, to get people to think about non-monogamy in a way that might fit them. And in terms of your first question, more about like, how can we get people to develop empathy or just care about the topic of non-monogamy? Sure, I'd probably give the advice like read, but there's also over the past couple of years, some really good and short documentaries or clips about consensual non-monogamy that I could think that is really helpful to understand how people live their lives because I think a lot of the stigma is coming from this idea that people who engage in non-monogamy are so radically different from people who don't. And so just kind of getting that first person or I guess it's not quite first person perspective from watching a documentary, but there was a really good one on CBSN and There's just different places to kind of expose yourself to non-monogamy. And then on social media, there has been a growing number of people in this kind of influencing or education space of talking openly and honestly about the relationship that they're in. So they'll have different partners on or they'll define different terms or it's more talking about them themselves engaging in non-monogamy. 
which I think can be really helpful to build perspective taking and to build empathy because you can start to form a parasocial relationship with someone and it can help decrease bias and prejudice that people might have. Can you think of the name of that documentary or any of the documentaries? And if not, we'll find them to... Oh, sure. I have a link to the CBSN one on my website. I was also interviewed for it, so it comes top of mind. (laughs) I think it's just called Exploring Non-Monogamy. I know the New York Times have done some profiles of different ways people are living in consensual non-monogamy. Right. And in the April of 2022, there was a really good kind of centerpiece story in the magazine Vogue that you can also find online that really profiles a few different people who engage in non-monogamy and then also some illustrative quotes from like researchers and that contextualizes kind of who is doing this and also why is it important to care about their lives. So there's definitely quite a few news sources that are I would recommend for people to read. Great. And is there anything else that you would want people to know about consensual monogamy or any of the research or the perspective that it's given you before we wrap up? I usually like to end with this idea that people have options. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh my gosh, I really want to try it, like go for it. Think about it. Start reading about it. There are a lot of other people who do this. In fact, there are so many other people who do it. There are their own like sets of dating apps to find other people. And if someone is listening and they're like, you know what, that's really not for me, but I'm happy if that finds other people happiness, that's great. That's like another great outcome. And then for those people who might be listening to this and they're filled with a little moral panic or a lot of moral panic or some unease or discomfort, I would just recommend that people just really challenge that and sit with it and think about why does the intimate lives of someone who's not you, how is that really affecting your life? And to kind of challenge those biases that people might have. Right. And just perspective and talking about this doesn't even need to mean it's something that you need to do or need to want to do or even need to be curious about wanting to do. But perspective is always so valuable and just understanding where you are on the spectrum and why you're there and what's important to you. And even if it is something like a metaphor being politics, sometimes people have different views on things that are uncomfortable. It doesn't mean talking about it is going to change your mind, but it might mean that you have different perspective or more insight or more understanding. And in fact, it might just mean you feel even more passionate about your choices and your perspective as a result. But Mm -hmm. there's always something to be said for expanding our own perspectives and even sometimes challenging them. Yeah, I totally agree. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. And I look forward to continuing to share your research with our listeners. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, 
We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.